So today's reading is from Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, <clears throat> Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Amen. Thank you, Ellen, very much for your reading. And hello again, Joel. Thank you so much, Claire, for the privilege and the joy of being with you. Let's entrust these moments to the Lord as we pray, and then we'll consider his word. Your word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. May your Holy Spirit so take his word today that it might come to us with power and deep conviction to bring joy and the joyful obedience of faith for the glory of Jesus Christ, our Saviour. Amen. Amen. So if you have sight of Psalm 126, that would help. We're simply just going to walk through, and I want us to notice that this psalm, they've written so long ago to a situation really very different from ours. We can locate it in a very specific point in the history of God's Old Testament people. Yet, it is so astonishingly relevant, challenging, and encouraging. The immediate situation to help us to understand the psalm well the psalm begins with joy doesn't it when the lord restored the fortunes of zion we were like those who dreamed our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with songs of joy what was their joy all about what were these restored fortunes the psalmist is taking us back to that situation 538 bc when the persian ruler cyrus issued an edict that all the captives the Jews in his territory were free should they want to be to return many hundreds of miles to their land, God's land in Israel and to the capital city, Jerusalem, here named as Zion. They could not believe their ears. They could not believe, let's say this, they could not believe their luck. This longing of their hearts, they barely dared to pray for it had suddenly come true. The Lord was restoring again the fortunes of Zion. And it was as if they said, as if we were dreaming. And you and I will know those times, events, situations in our lives where everything has actually, for once, worked. It's come right. We've, we've known some, some success, some achievement. Professionally, academically, in sport, in relationships, in our families, our friendship groups, something has actually worked. And we're like those who dreamed. We can hardly believe it. And of course, when things go right in our lives, what do we want to do? We, we want to sing. We want to shout. We want to celebrate. We want to share the achievement, the blessing. We're filled with joy, private songs of joy or if we can share them, we want to involve others 
and share. Well, I said share our luck. But in the minds of these Israelite worshippers, there's no luck. It's the work of God. It's the blessing and generous hand. It's the faithfulness of God. He restored the fortunes of his ancient people, taking them back under the leadership of Zerubbabel, the first governor of the restored city, and Ezra and Nehemiah. And they built up the city walls. They established again some measure of society and community, justice and order in that city and the surrounding area. And they built, after a fashion, the temple at Jerusalem. They knew God was with them. And so did the pagan nations, verse 2, even amongst those territories and amongst those peoples who were hostile to them for many centuries, the recognition their God has done this. They knew this wasn't just the whim, the arbitrary edict of a ruler many hundreds of miles away. Even they saw the faithfulness of God, Israel's God. And so verse three, the psalmist says, yep, you're absolutely right. Our God is trustworthy he doesn't work according to our time scales he doesn't always work in ways we find pleasant or comfortable or likable but in this moment he worked emphatically and their hearts and their mouths are filled with joy and at this point amongst the laughter and the joy there's a real change of emotional tone where testimony and celebration at what God has done turns to concern and prayer for the work ahead. So if we move into the second half of the psalm, the one who has restored Zion, God himself, is now the one to whom these urgent prayers turned restore our fortunes lord yes they had come back into the land but you read the many of the minor prophets you read ezra nehemiah and what you read is struggle pain opposition fear doubt hardship and hard work it's lovely setting out on a project, isn't it? Until you realize and experience the cost. And then really you're forced to look to the generous and the sustaining hand of God. Restore our fortunes, Lord. What an interesting image is chosen. Like, like what? Like streams in the Negev. The Negev, that extreme southern arid region of the Jews ancient land, a land with very little rainfall, but where sudden downpours could occasionally happen. And empty stream beds were suddenly full and raging and roaring and bringing nourishment and life and hope to the region and its people. Lord, restore our fortunes like that. Restore our people suddenly, dramatically, because we can't do it ourselves. No amount of human effort 
can sustain us. We need you. And we look at our nation at the moment. And we look at so much fear. So much uncertainty. So much depression, anxiety, anger, and rage. As a pastor, I've seen the tears, the frustration, the uncertainty of people in my church, just as you will have in yours. And yet God is able to take the hearts and lives of frightened, desperate people and work something completely new out of them. One of my little uh, sideshows in my spare time, I'm, I'm engaged in doctoral research work on a man who worked in our town in the middle of the, 1800, the 1700s called Henry Venn. Henry Venn was a very godly Church of England minister, the parish minister in the town. He hated exaggeration. He hated self-promotion. But he estimated that in his 12 years of ministry in the town, he'd seen between eight and 900 people profess faith in Jesus Christ and experience life and forgiveness and joy in him. And you can read the stories of many of them. They are extraordinary testimonies to a God who restores fortunes. That means who brings life and hope from death and despair. A God who, perhaps back to the language of verse one, takes captives. Begging your pardon, the word, is, the word is not in that translation there. But, but that's what God does. He took the captives of Zion, of, of Persia, and brought them to Zion, our God in Christ, as it were, became captive. Our God before Pilate was bound and given over to death for our sake. He was crushed that we might have life. He was cut off that we might be welcomed in as we trust him. Now look at how the hardship goes on. Those who sow with tears, and that image of tears is repeated in verse six, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow. Now the image there is of the people seeking to build a, a new community. They go out into those fields which have been deliberately strewn with rubble and stone by the invading armies and neglected for many decades. And yet they're taking precious seed carefully stored up from the harvest of the summer before, dried out, guarded from rats and predators through the year. And it's precious and valuable. And yet the sower goes out seeking to sow the fields that his community might have food and a hope and a future. And he's weeping. Because he's thinking, as we think when we engage on costly, dangerous, sacrificial work, is it worth it? Is this work really worth it? Is God with me? Am I wasting my time? And yet the promise of the psalmist is that though these farmers may sow with tears and carry their seed with, with tears, there is the prospect of joy, this prospect of 
a harvest, the prospect of hope for those who work for Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is, of course, the supreme example of the one who toiled, who worked hard in his obedient faith to his father, and who sowed with tears. Jesus was the man of sorrows, as Isaiah predicted him. He wept over broken and lost and hard-hearted people. He wept in the face of unbelief. He poured himself out. And in Gethsemane, we might say he sowed that ground with his tears as he wrestled in agony, praying for strength fully to obey his Father's will. He goes to the cross with tears. He takes on himself our tears, our sorrows, our sin and our guilt. He dies under it all. He takes it to his heart. It claims his life. He dies in our place and he rises with joy. He rises with joy. He returns, verse six, with songs of joy on Easter morning, carrying to us the hope of forgiveness and new life, the incredible offer of peace with God, simply through trusting Jesus for our salvation. What a wonderful and fabulous message of confident hope because he cried and labored for us. We might rest in him and know comfort in the place of all of our tears and peace in the place of our guilt and hope in the place of our despair. That is a Christian faith and it's nothing less. But if that Christian faith is ours, we're called to labor for him and with him. The New Testament is full of encouragements to labor like Jesus and for him, not to lose heart, not to give up, because we are so tempted to give up and lose heart in our Christian lives, in our Christian work. But God blesses patient trusting, persevering labor. I was very struck this week rereading the letter written by John Wesley to William Wilberforce six days before Wesley's death, where Wesley had written about the evils of the slave trade, the outrages of it, is encouraging Wilberforce. Wilberforce had only undertaken the abolitionist course four years before. And slavery would only be finally abolished in 1833, two days before Wilberforce's death. Wilberforce tells, Wesley tells him to press on saying, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you'll be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. And he was almost worn out. He had mental health breakdowns, he was physically attacked, he was assaulted, he was opposed to every step, and often he had to travel with an armed bodyguard. And yet he persevered so many decades. And as Wesley said, if God be for you, who can be against you? Go on, 
in the name of God and in the power of his might till even slavery shall vanish away before it. So dear friends, we all have callings to pursue. We have work to do. Your tears and your exhaustion are no sign that God has left you. Maybe every evidence that he's with you, strengthening you in the great causes in which he's placed you. And we work for him and in his name to show an anxious and angry society that in Jesus Christ, there is every reason for hope and joy. And we have every confidence that as we labor for him, God will be building a true society and a new community where all find rest and hope in him. May I pray and then Claire, I'll hand back to you. Oh God, we look to that final day of heaven where you have promised to reward all who labor in your name. And we thank you that the great laborer Jesus there takes his rest and his reign and calls us one day to join him in his presence. Lord, please receive our tired hearts, our weary hands. Please strengthen us in your faith and in your service. And as we go even today back to our callings, help us to go with courage that whatever the cost, as we walk in integrity before you, you are there to bless us, to guide us, and to cause us to bear fruit for the glory of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.